This morning, I want you, if you would, to join with me in the book of Philippians. We're going to be preaching out of the New Testament. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, if you want to turn there. I'm going to kind of just do a real brief flyover of the, of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Because you remember when he wrote the letter, of course, it didn't have chapters and verses in it. We put that in there so we can kind of navigate our way around and find our place there. It's a continuous letter. And Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, uh, Philippi is a continuous thought pattern. He's, he's addressing something there. Now, we typically think of that letter in the terms of joy because there's the word joy is used a lot, rejoicing in the Lord. But there's actually a, a, a theme that Paul is addressing here. And honestly, church, in all the commentaries I've read and everything that I've studied, I've never really seen this before. I was reading it this week, and it just slept off the pages at me. I'm like, wow, Paul, you're, you're dealing with something. In fact, when he wrote to the churches, he was usually addressing some issue uh, that was going on in the church. And these things are for a pattern for us today. The Scripture says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's all profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, so the man of God will be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all of this is for our benefit. And so he's writing to the church at Philippi, and if you look in chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Everybody say every prayer. So every time he remembered them, Every prayer he prayed, he says, I am making requests for all of you, for you all, with joy. And this is what caught me, for your fellowship in the gospel. So every time he's praying, he's praying about their fellowship, the way that they are fellowshipping, the way they're getting along with each other. From the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then down in verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, and that you may, be a, uh, that you may approve the things that are excellent. So if you're going to approve the things that are excellent, then you're going to disapprove of the things that's not excellent. Does that make sense to you? All right, so I want you to approve of the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense. And I thought, boy, that just came in there in an odd place to me. Without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So I asked the question, why was Paul concerned about the church of Philippi being offended? Why was he concerned about that? And how did he believe that it could affect their fellowship? Now, in this letter, Paul speaks more around the problem that's going on there then he actually speaks directly to it. And, and I don't think that's by mistake. I think that there's a reason for that. And the reason I believe that he speaks more around it than directly to it is because this is not necessarily a church of Philippi problem. And it's not necessarily a church problem. It's a human problem. It's a people problem that he is addressing. Because sometimes we just don't get along with people in our family, people on the job, people, just people in general. We have trouble fellowshipping with each other because sometimes 
we get offended. Am I right about that? Say amen. Okay. So he's dealing with a people problem, I I believe, more than just a problem that's going on in the church there. So he doesn't speak specifically as to what was happening or who was causing this problem in Philippi, but he does allude to a few things that was happening there. Most importantly, he's making notes of what he expects the church to do in response to these things. Now, if you look with me down at verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from a good will. The former, meaning the troublemakers, those that are preaching out of envy and strife, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So you see, Paul is writing this letter from the church, from, from, from the prison in Rome. So it's like it's not bad enough that he's already in prison. They're trying to hurt him even more is what he's saying. So they're preaching this out of selfish ambition, hoping that they can hurt me even more than I'm being hurt right now. Come on, that wasn't a nice thing to do, was it? Verse 17 says, but the latter, talking about those that preach out of goodwill, he said, they preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. It's not that they agreed with everything that Paul did and everything that he said. But what, what he's saying in that is they understand that I've got a call on my life, that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I have been appointed for this purpose. And they understand they have respect for the office, not necessarily for everything that I do or say. Nobody's perfect. The Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect and you're not. So verse 18, it says, what then? Only, now I want you to listen to his attitude. Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice and yes, I will rejoice. So Paul acknowledges that there are those that want to hurt him, but he refused to be offended by that. He said, even though they're being pretentious, they're preaching out of selfish vanity and and strife and out of self-conceit, they are at least preaching Jesus Christ, and I thank God for that. Now, he continues in chapter 2 with an instruction of how we are to treat these people and how we're to treat each other. Verse 1, it says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ... If there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affliction and mercy, affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now, that's a key phrase. He says this repeatedly throughout the letter. Be of like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Unity is important in any setting. When you have division and you have chaos and confusion and stuff, and when you have unity, you remember when they started to build the Tower of Babel, the Bible says that God could not withstand anything that they do because they were in one mind and one accord. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it said they were all in the upper room and they were in one accord. So when there's unity, church, when we're unified, the devil better look out. Amen. Now, I'm preaching this morning not because there's a problem going on in our church, just the opposite. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I'm just letting you know this is the attitude that we have, we need to maintain, and we need to increase, amen, to being unified. Verse 3 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look not only upon his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, the only place, moving on, the only place that he actually hinted to what was causing the problem was in chapter 3, the next chapter. Verse 2, if you look there with me, he says, beware of dogs. Now, the term, the word dogs is usually a term that's referring to a, a, a person that is not a child of God. Because if you remember, Jesus said he came to his own and his own received him not. He said he came to the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't come to the Gentiles. He came for the Gentiles. Does that make sense? Because if you remember the Seraphonician woman came to him, she's a Gentile, and said, my daughter is sick. If you'll come and pray for her, she'll be healed. And Jesus didn't even acknowledge the woman had even spoken to him. And so she, she said it again, and, and, and she kept badgering, basically, him. And finally, he turned around and looked at her and says, it's not fitting to give the children's bread to a dog. I mean, he called the woman a dog. But he wasn't trying to insult her. He, he, that was a, it's a term that meant you're not a child of God. You're not one of, the, one of my children. So he's, he's saying here, beware of dogs. People that are doing the things that the people in this church were doing, peaching out of strife and, and vanity and, and self-conceit and all of that, he said, those are the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of mutilation. Now, the dogs and evil workers was likely the reference to those that were preaching out of selfish ambition. Mutilation, he explains what that is in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. Rejoicing in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. And then he goes into a, a, explaining what he meant by that. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. As a Pharisee, I was a, a student of the law. He said, I was flawless and I was zealous. And he goes on all of these things. In other words, what he's saying is that of all of you in Philippi, if anybody out there thinks he is a Jew that practices all of the customs of the Jewish laws and the dietary laws and the observing holy days, he said, I do that more than all of you. If anybody has a right to boast about their flesh and what they do in the flesh, I have more right than you do. But all those things that I counted as gain I now count it as loss that I may win Christ. One translation, he says, I count it as dung. It's, 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 it's a pile of manure that I may win Christ. And he said, this I do, forgetting those things which are behind. All of those things that I had to do to discipline myself and be accepted in the sight of God under the old Jewish law. He said, all of those things that are behind me, I forget them. But I press on towards the prize of the mark of the high calling of God. So it implies that what was going on was the group of people, this followed him throughout his entire ministry, that was saying, all right, we're Jews and you Gentiles can be Christians. 
We accept that. We accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. We recognize him as such. And you can be saved, but you have to be circumcised. And you have to observe all the holy days and all the rituals that we've observed under the Mosaic laws. And Paul is saying, look, all of those things, I count as loss. I forget those things. That's not what we're about anymore. We're about just chasing after Jesus. And so he, he, it's likely that that's the problem he was dealing with. Then in, ver, in verse, uh, um, chapter 4, the last chapter, there's only four chapters in Philippi. He, he kind of wraps it up and he sort of zeroes in on what he's really dealing with here. Verse 2, if you look there with, it, with me, it says, I implore Iodia and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. There we see it again. Now, it's not clear, and theologians don't know exactly who was the pastor of the church at Philippi. They don't know who, the, who led it. There are suggestions as to who led it. Because the church at Philippi, Euodia and Sintichi were two women in the church. And it's not clear if they were not in the same mind with each other. Were they arguing with each other? Or were they the two troublemakers that was causing the problem in the church? I don't think so. I think that they were actually the ones that was trying to bring order in the church. And, the, and they were running into opposition from others. And he said, look, you need to be of the same mind, not with each other necessarily, but with Christ Jesus. Because remember, he said, let this mind be in you, Euodia. Let this mind be in you, Sintichi, that was in Christ Jesus, who came in the form of a man. He counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but he didn't make himself of any reputation. He humbled himself. Let that mind be in you. Be of that same mind, of that same uh, agreement. I believe that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 3, because he says, and, and, and it, I think this is what clarifies it. He said, I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. With Clement, that's another lady, also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. People's, what he's saying is, look, Clement, my dear sister in the Lord, Iodia, my sister in the Lord, Sintichi, my sister in the Lord, people are going to criticize you. But you cannot let that offend you. Instead, you need to have the mind of Christ. Because see, this church, this is one thing that kind of flies in the face of people that really want to get on you ladies and say that you don't have a place in the church. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying, I'm not really addressing that. What I am telling you is the history of the church at Philippi began with a group of women. Because if you remember, the apostle Paul was on his, his third missionary journey, his second missionary journey. The first one, he had gotten in an argument with Barnabas. Remember that? And, and, and so they split up, and he takes Silas with him. And they're going to go back and visit the churches because on the first missionary journey, they had this question, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? He said, I don't know. So he goes back to Jerusalem, and they get the answer to that. Then he's going to go out the second time and check on all the churches and carry the answer basically back to them. 
And so he takes Silas with him. And then he's going throughout Pamphylia and, 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 and Pergamos and different places. And he gets to one place. He wants to go into Asia. And the Holy Spirit forbade him. He said, you can't go there. Then you want to go to Bithynia. And he says, no. So then he goes over to Troas and he sees a vision in the night, a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So he turns and goes to, and comes to Philippi, which was a chief city. And it says he was there many days. And on the Sabbath day, he goes down to the riverside where people were gathered to pray. And there was a group of women there. And so he's starting to preach to this group of women. And there was a lady there named Lydia. And it says she was a seller of purple. Now, that's, that's important because if you were a seller of purple during those, that period of time, that meant that you, you owned a thriving, wealthy business because only royalty wore purple or, or dignitaries or, or aristocracy wore purple. If you remember when they crucified Jesus, they put a purple robe on him to mock him. It says, behold, the king of the Jews. And so she was a, it's believed and theologians agree she was a very, very wealthy independent businesswoman in Philippi. And she actually underwrote a lot of Paul's ministry because it says, he said, when I was in, said, you, 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 you helped me time and again. Even when I was in Thessalonica, they didn't do anything to help me. But you sent time and again to support my ministry while I was there. And a lot of that support was probably coming from Lydia. And so Sintichi and Iodia and Clement, it's a, that was probably a group of the original women that was helping uh, establish that church. After that, if you remember, he went through the city and, and a little demon-possessed girl followed him around and said, here are these men, they're great men of God. And he cast the demon out of the, the child. The one that owned her had him beaten and thrown in prison. Everybody remember that story? And at midnight, an earthquake came and the shackles fell off. The jailkeeper was going to kill himself because he's a Roman employee. And if he loses these prisoners, they're going to kill him anyway. And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. He takes Paul and Silas out, mends their wounds, and says, what must I do to be saved? He said, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved and your household. So the beginning of the church at Philippi was this group of women who were prominent. It's believed that Lydia actually owned a whole villa. And it says when she was saved in her household, it meant all of her employees, all of the, if she had children, we don't know if she was a widow or divorced or what, but everyone in her household, that was the beginning of the church at Philippi. And so when Paul leaves, he leaves them there. And so he's writing back to them and he doesn't address any men in the church. He says, help the women that was with me in the beginning. So you know, it's debatable as to who exactly was leading the church. Some people strongly believe that Lydia actually was the leader of the church, but we don't know. Then he finally winds up in verse 4 of chapter 4, and we'll wrap this up with this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasseth all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Amen. Come on. If you do this, that's a good thing. You, what he's saying is rejoice, rejoice in the Lord and just let the haters hate. Huh? Haters are going to hate. 
And hurt people is going to hurt people. But I want you to rejoice to the Lord because he is at hand. And then he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things have a good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that Paul took the time, God, while he's in prison, Lord, in chains, God, to sit down and pen a letter out of his heart and his love and his concern for his brothers and sisters in Christ there in Philippi. And God, that letter has lasted through the ages, Lord, and we can hold it in our hands today, God, and we can see the heart that he had for his people, the heart that you have for your people, God, and we can benefit from that today. Lord, there's a message in here for the body of Christ. There's a message in here for humanity. And God, I pray that you will help me today, God, to express this this concept, Lord, and this valuable, valuable lesson today, Lord. But most of all, I pray that we will receive it in our heart, God. Make it a part of our life. Lord, the songs we sang in the beginning, Lord, we just want you to have it all, God. Lord, I pray that we do increase more and more, God. We want more of you, God. We want more of you. We really do. So, Lord, speak to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you're criticized? Nobody likes to be criticized. But we're all criticized. What do you do with that? We live in a world of negativity. Just watch the news. Good news doesn't sell. Bad news sells. Why? Because people are negative. Research has shown that 80% of our thoughts are negative. Eight out of 10 thoughts you have are negative. Therefore, most people are not optimistic by nature. Most people are pessimistic. Pessimist means you tend to see the worst aspect of things. You believe that the worst will happen. Being optimistic means you're hopeful and confident about life in the future. But we often see life and other people through the lens of a pessimist negative attitude. When we look at things, we're looking for what's wrong with it, not what's good about it. What's wrong with it? I am not necessarily that by nature, but a lot of people are, and it just irritates the life out of me. It's like, why do you always, the whole sheet can be white, and there's one teeny little dot, one little stain on the sheet, and instead of seeing all of that beautiful white sheet, they see that one little speck, and that becomes their focus. Negative, pessimistic. And as such, our comments express our views, and we criticize. So if we see things through the lens of pessimistic negativity, and then our comments express that, it's going to come out as criticism. Criticizing this, complaining about that, griping about that. This is human nature. God had to deal with it with the children of Israel throughout their entire journey in the wilderness murmuring and complaining. Come on, somebody, say amen. I know we're guilty. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. 
and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Not some of it. Come on, church. Amen. All of it with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Church, if we just took one little piece of the Bible out and said, I'm going to live by this and use that, we wouldn't have any problems in the body of Christ or in life. Amen? Being kind to people, tenderhearted, forgiving, not being malice, not having malice in our heart. Wow. The Bible says that the tongue, however, is full of poison, that we use it to bless, and we also use it to curse. James chapter 3 says the tongue can no man tame. Listen, you can't tame it, but God can. Amen? The tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So we can either think and speak things that bless, or we can think and speak things that curse. We can hear and receive things that bless. Or we can hear and receive things that curse. Curses offend us and, or blessings comes out of our mouth. So we <clears throat> would be naive to think that we're always going to hear positive things that bless us. All right? So if you're not going to hear positive things all the time, there is a chance you could be offended. Because we're not going to hear positive things. The enemy of God always speaks evil. Always. Psalms chapter 5 verse 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemy. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Now when I read that, I'm like, wait a minute. If they're full of destruction, how is that coming in the form of flattery? Because if they're flattering me, that doesn't sound negative. That sounds positive. But it's done in a way to deceive. Because 2 Timothy 3 says this, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. And that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Because all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. It's like, wait a minute. Reproof is not flattering. Now, reproof is somebody telling me something that I really need to hear. And sometimes that sounds like criticism. But the scriptures for reproof is for correction. That can sound like criticism. It's for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall judge the quick and the dead and his appearing in the kingdom. Preach the word. That's not flattering necessarily. Because what is the word? Those things that are true, those things that are honest, those things that are just, those things that are pure. They're virtuous. He tells us to be instant, in season and out of season. To reprove. That's not flattering. To rebuke, that's not flattering. To exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they, after their own lust, shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. What does that mean? Flatter me. I'm living in depravity in sin, but don't tell me that. I don't want to know the truth. I want you to just make me feel good in my sin. So flatter me, deceive me. Seducing spirit, seduce me. He said that's what's going to happen in the last day. And says, and they, verse 4, shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. So evil men and seducers, they flatter with their tongue. Godly men preach the word. They preach truth. And God will bless one and he will judge the other. So we're to bless and not curse, but we think of speaking words of blessing as words that don't offend. Ephesians 4, it says, 29, said to uh, um, corrupt communication, we think of that as words that offend you, and they are. But what are words that minister grace? We're supposed to minister grace, not things that offend people, well, what are words of grace? Look at one more scripture, and then I'm going to get into something else here. Titus chapter 2, he starts out with verse 15. If you look at verse 15, it says, speak these things. Well, what things? Back up to verse 11. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, uh, his own special people, zealous for good works. So the good things he's saying, we should speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. What I'm saying here is being gracious in our speech doesn't mean we're using flattery. Evil men and seducers use flattery. Godly men tell the truth, things that are true and honest and just and kind, that's tender, that's loving. But it's the truth, and it blesses you, and God will bless that, but he's going to judge flattery. And blessing always comes in the form of truth. But truth sometimes comes in a way that seems like criticism. And see, this is what Paul is dealing with in the church of Philippi. Because there's, there, there's two things happening here. There's people that's speaking the truth and, and, and people don't want to hear it. And there's people that's trying to undermine the truth and they're criticizing, they're criticizing Paul, they're, they're trying to hurt Paul even more, they're causing uh, chaos in the church, and, and, and Paul is saying, look, even though that's going on, you cannot let that offend you. 
He said, every time I pray for you, every time I remember you, I pray that your love will grow more and more and more, and I pray that you will not be offended. People get offended in, 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 in every, this is not just a church problem. People get offended on the job. Somebody said something, and it may have been honest and true and direct, and they, they got their feelings hurt, and they got offended. In your family, husbands and wives, we do this all the time. We have a trouble, problem communicating sometimes because of what's being said and what's being heard. Also, we should realize that many times there's a difference between what is being said and what's being heard. Somebody can say something to you, and it can be just absolutely kind and, and right and true, but that's not what you heard. Jeannie and I, when we first got married, we, we wasn't connecting. We were doing this all the time. Because I would say something, and she would interpret it entirely different. I was like, that's not what I meant. And she'd be so mad, and then she'd say something, and I'm like, would make me mad. And that was, I don't know if all you girls are like this, but she is notorious to ask questions about what I'm doing. Well, I took that as like, you don't like the way I'm doing this. Is, is that just women? Come on, wives, help me out here. Is that, does your husband get mad when you ask him questions about what he's doing? What are, what are you doing? And then she'd say, well, I was just asking. I'm like, no, you weren't. You were telling me you didn't like the way I was doing it. What's being said and what's being heard? And somebody got offended. Huh? And it works both ways. Come on, the tongue is a two-edged sword. Meaning, you say something sharp to me, I'm saying something sharp right back at you. Huh? So we do this all the time. Other time, it's not the statement is wrong, it's just the interpretation of it. Somebody can say, make a statement, and you just interpret it entirely different. You're offended because it sounded like criticism. And then sometimes you hear exactly what they said, and they were just wrong. I know what you said. Uh, there's no misinterpretation here, but you don't know what you're talking about. You're just, you're just wrong. And we get offended. <laughs> we need to be big enough not to be offended. I heard a statement years ago that really resonated with me. Big people get upset about big things. Little people get upset about little things. Huh? Do you go off and get tizzy about just some little thing? Are you a little person? Come on, you're not big enough that you can hear that and that doesn't bother you. A lot of times when we don't like what's being said, we just go, click. Come on, them wives say, yeah, my husband's good at that. <laughs> She's saying something, he goes, click. And you don't hear a thing. You learn how to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Yes, dear. Tell me what I just said. 
Uh, that's when you want a Twix to put in your mouth. <laughs> when people argue, it is scientifically proven that you can get in an argument and you can get so angry that you physically lose the ability to hear. When you get in a shouting contest, you can get so angry that they're talking, you don't hear, you can't physically cannot hear what they're saying because you're so angry. Because we do that, we just tune things out, turn them off. Instead of being big, big enough to say, give it your best shot. Whatever you say, you can call me a low-down, good-for-nothing, blankety-blank, blah, blah, blah. So are you big enough to say, hit me with your best shot? I'm going to listen to everything that you say, and I'm not going to take it into my heart. I'm going to process it through my head because I'm going to listen to what you have to say, and then I'm going to process that. Are you big enough to do that? Because sometimes the thing that people say, it sounds like criticism. Sometimes it is criticism. And sometimes, church, it can be a blessing. A big, are you a big enough person to hear criticism and keep your emotions in check? Not everybody is. But Paul is writing this letter to help you learn how to do this. Because in that letter, he says, I have learned... I have learned how to be a base and how to abound. I have learned in all things and everything how to be content. So I, 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 what are you saying? I'm in prison. You're trying to hurt me. He said, but that's okay. I, I am willing to process it all, and, and I'm big enough to come up with a conclusion based on logic, not on emotion. Aristotle said, criticism is something we can easily avoid by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Church, we need criticism in our life. When other people criticize you, it can help you or it can hurt you. And church, we can't control what others will say to us but we can control what we do with it. We can learn. Do you internalize it? How do you respond to it? Do you learn from it? And most importantly, do you release it and move on? Criticism can dominate your feelings to the point that it totally controls you and controls your life controls your actions, controls the personality that you have, especially if it comes from someone that you look up to. Come on, a, a, a cutting remark from a stranger, why do you care? You know, some guy in the, in the store, you know, I, there, there was a, I just popped in my head, there, there was a situation with a mask Remember back when we had to wear a mask in the store? This lady didn't have a mask on, and this man, like, went off on her at Walmart. Would, he made a mistake because Gigi was standing there. Right in the middle of Walmart, and he is just black. This woman's crying. 
Jeannie steps between them and said, Jesus, Jesus, how I love him, how I prove him more and more. This guy's looking at her like she'd have lost her mind. And then she turned and says, honey, it's all right. She said, I can't wear the mask. I've got this physical blah, blah, blah. I can't breathe, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're never going to see this guy again. Why do you care what he said? But now, if it's somebody that you know and you love and you respect and you look up to and they start cutting your heart, come on, that hurts. So it can, it can harm you. It can hurt you if you internalize it, if you don't learn how to respond to it. Most importantly, if you don't release it and move on, it can totally control your life. You can think about... When, when that happens, you can't think about anything else. It just hurts. Dominate your whole day. Can dominate. How many of you have had an argument with your spouse and all day long? You try to put it out of your mind, but you just cannot shake it. You try to, re, you try to redirect and think about something else. And no matter how, what you're working on, what you're doing, in the back of your mind, it's that conversation. It's what he said. It's what she said. And it dominates your whole day. It can dominate your whole week, your whole month, your whole year. Some people's whole life has been dominated by something that was said that offended them, that was criticism, that cut them, shaped them. I know a man today that his father told him one day, said, boy, you're never going to amount to anything. And he was a grown man, and he, one day I was talking to him, and we were talking about it, and he commented, yeah, my daddy told me I'd never amount to anything. I'm like, he is a grown man, and he is still holding on to that statement from his childhood. It can wreck your world. If you don't learn how to process it correctly, it hits a sensitive spot, and we hold on to it sometimes for a lifetime because we never, never learn to release it. Learning to deal with criticism can set you free. Paul was the target of criticism, but Paul went on and wrote in other places, says, I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he understood, I got, to, I got to process this and put it in its proper category. And then I turn it, he, he says, cast your cares on Christ, for he cares for you. Aren't you glad you got somebody you can take this to and just give it to him? Say, Lord, read, read some of the Psalms of David. Boy, that guy learned how to deal with attacks and criticism. How he would care to the, care to the Lord. So when we get feedback from people, whether it's intentional or it's unintentional, it's just something you interpreted, whether it's direct or indirect, whether it's an innuendo or somebody's just hinted something, if it sounds like criticism, it will help you to question your instinctive association and feelings. You say, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> your instinctive association with what is being said is do you instinctively associate phrases as if it sounds like criticism, it's bad. If it sounds like criticism, it's bad. But if it sounds like flattery or something is praising me, then it's good. Praise is good, criticism bad. That's your instinctive association. 
And your feelings is a reaction to that. The reason that multitudes of people flock to stadiums where pastors stand and never preach anything negative, they only preach feel-good messages, is because people want to be flattered. Flatter me. Say things good to me. Don't tell me that I'm a sinner, that I'm dying in my sin. Tell me God loves you and he's hope. And all those things are true, but there's another side. There's a negative and a positive. And we need them both in our life if you're going to speak truth. So the question is, is criticism bad? Because you are going to be criticized. That's not a maybe. You will be criticized. And it can help you or it can hurt you. And if we recondition ourselves to measure things people say in less black and white terms, we can process them with clearer thinking. Interpreting someone's comment is an opportunity for you to rationally think about what has been said. And despite the negative tone, criticism can be incredibly helpful. Church, I've had to learn this because in the pastoral ministry, and this is not poor old Pastor B, I don't want you to take that, but all pastors can tell you this, you are the target of criticism. You are criticized more than the average bear. All right, and you have to learn to listen to what's being said and give, give it your attention and don't just assume automatically that it's bad and let it hurt you and, and offend you. A lot of pastors are out of the pastoral ministry today because they didn't learn how to process criticism. So you have to learn this, and if you do, it can actually be incredibly helpful. Remember, researchers said that 80% of our thoughts are negative. And a lot of times we speak that way and we process things that way. If our thoughts are negative, it's in the things that we reflect when we speak to people. It's also in the way that we receive things from people. They meant that. They meant this and they meant that. Now, if you can get a hold of this, you're on your way to a huge breakthrough. Being criticized will challenge you in ways that nothing else will challenge you. Because if you've got some guy and he really, really needs to stop doing this whatever, and nobody ever tells him, he continues his whole life in this terrible behavior. But if somebody has enough love and concern and care for this guy, say, look, man, you really ought to comb your hair once in a while. You really ought to brush your teeth and take a bath. You know, you really ought to this or that. That sounds like criticism, but am I trying to help this man? And if he will receive that, it will change his world. People, all of a sudden, he's like, he smells pretty good today. I think I'll sit down beside of him and talk to him, you know, instead of sitting three rows back. We have, those stories that pop in your head. I worked, when I was going to Bible college, I would go to work at seven in the evening and I welded all night long, 12-hour shift to 7 in the morning. And we would set up this big panel. I'd set up this big panel. It was like radiators for steel mills. It was two-and-a-half-inch heavy wall pipe. And it were put together like this, and then they had caps, and we just welded one right after the other. And we'd set this big fan up to pull the smoke away from you while you're welding. And so you'd get there, set a 50-pound box of 70, 18 rods up there, cut the end off of it, and you just one rod right after the other all night long. And that fan is pulling smoke away. Well, there was this gentleman 
that had worked there for many, many years, and he had a, a welding hat that he had when he first started working there 10 years ago. The same hat that he had sweated in for 10 years. And you didn't have to look to see if he was walking past you. You're like welding all of a sudden. Oh, oh. You knew he just walked right behind you. Wouldn't it have been nice if somebody would have went up and said, sir, I want to help you. They didn't do that. They broke in his locker, stole his hat, and set it on fire and burned it. <laughs> he had to buy a new hat. I don't know if they bought him a new hat and put it in there or not, but... I know that had to hurt the guy's feelings. And probably tell him, look, dude, your hat stinks, man. Would probably hurt his feelings, but wouldn't that help the man? The truth. Sometimes we need to know the truth. The truth will make you free, but first it'll tick you off. Amen. That was a revelation we had one time. The truth will set you free, but first it'll make you mad. So there's benefits of criticism. Finding the seeds of truth, it encourages humility. Finding the seed of truth encourages humility. If somebody's criticizing me and what they're telling me, because I've had people and they point this out, I'm like, okay, I'm, I heard that. Then I take it home, I think about it, I pray about it. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> they're right. They're right. They're right. And I process that truth, and it birthed humility in me. I have to humble myself enough to say, you know what? They're right. So it encourages humility. When Philippi was criticized, Paul encouraged them, let this mind be in you. Don't get all bent out of shape. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, the one who was perfect. He was so perfect, in fact, that he did not count it robbery to be equal with God. But he didn't make himself of any reputation. He didn't say, well, who do you think you are saying that to me? I'm somebody. He didn't do that. He humbled himself and became a bondservant. Let that mind be in you. When somebody is pointing out something that is actually true, but it's just ticking you off, let that mind be in you. It can actually help you. Do you honestly think that you never do anything wrong? You have to ask yourself, do I honestly think that I'm never wrong? I mean, I told my kids when they were little, I said, we've got one rule in this house. Daddy is always right. Rule number two, if daddy is ever wrong, refer back to rule number one. <laughs> It was a joke, all right? I don't really believe that, but they had to know Daddy was in charge, and they did. I wasn't over heavy-handed with that, but... Did you honestly think that you're never wrong? You have to humble yourself. I, I did a sermon years ago, and, and the sermon was titled, Hee Haw. Sometimes you're a donkey. All right, sometimes you're just, you just make a donkey out of yourself. And when you do, you just like to have to face it and say, well, I'm a donkey. You say, hee-haw, and you move on. I mean, you don't beat yourself up. It's like, okay, I learned from that. I, I'll try not to ever do that again. And you move on. 
Don't think, well, who do you think you are? Just because, listen, just because the person that points out a flaw in your life, they have problems too because this is what we usually do. You, somebody points out something wrong with you, you say, yeah, but you blah, 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 and you start pointing out everything's wrong with them. Huh? That two-edged sword. Am I right? Come on. Don't sit there and act all holy. You know what I'm talking about. Just because they have flaws in their life too doesn't mean that what they pointed out about you doesn't have merit. If there's merit in what they're saying, they may have 10 times more problems than I do. But they pointed out something that's true about me that can help me if I will receive that and humble myself. If it's true, it's true. Amen? You can only grow when you face truth and choose to learn from it. First Peter 5, it says, Likewise, younger, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder, yea, and all of you be subject one to another. Come on, we are all like iron, and iron sharpens iron. Amen? And so you sharpen the countenance of your friend. If you really love somebody and you care about them, you want to see the best in them. So, and it's not that we're going to run around and start just examining each other. and try. That's not what he's talking about. But sometimes when there's clearly some issues that you need to deal with and somebody points that out, we need to learn how to receive that. He says, and be clothed with humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. In other words, don't get wigged out when you're corrected. This is why I need you, God. I can bring this to you and I can cast this care upon you. And then learn from it. And then you say hee-haw and you move on. Amen? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, just say hee-haw. Because you are a donkey sometimes. (laughs) When somebody points something out, weigh their words, does it have merit? Or is it off base? You know, because they come, it's like, wait, listen to what they're saying. Does that have merit? Or like, no, they're, they're way off base. Measure the atmosphere. Is this a person that, this is things that I've learned, all right? I'm just sharing some, hopefully it's wisdom. Measure the atmosphere. Is this person committed to my good? Do I know that they're, they're trying to help me? I know that they mean this for good. They're trying to help me. How well do they know me? And was their intention constructive? Was it intended to help me or was it to inflict pain? But either way, whether it was instructive, it was, it was intended to inflict pain, whether it was to try to help me or hurt me, we should be like Christ. What should my response be? If there's merit in it, then I should be gracious that they love me enough to come and point out that I need to change my hat. It stinks. You know, I need to take a bath. I need to whatever. You know, I need to correct something in my life. They love me enough to help me. Thank you. Thank you that you love me that much, that you wanted to help me. Because I've had some people actually point out things in my life that they saw that was, it was a character flaw in me, and they's like, 
And, and when I back up and looked at it, I was like, you know, they're right. And I don't want people to see me like that. I'm glad you pointed that out to me. I didn't see that. And so you correct that and you learn from it and you're a better person because of it. They helped me shape my character. There was a girl in an acting class and she said, because I was desperately afraid of being judged, I took everything from everyone as condemnation. But I realized criticism doesn't always come gently from someone legitimately trying to help. A lot of feedback we receive is unsolicited and doesn't come from teachers. Or maybe all of it does. In other words, whether they meant it for your hurt or they meant it to help you, we can still, that can be a teaching moment. If I get my heart right, that can be a teaching moment. I won't let that offend me. Even if you were trying to hurt me, I won't let that offend me. I'm going to use this as a teaching moment. We can learn from anyone that is speaking in our life, and especially if they're speaking truth. If it has merit, be grateful. And if it's off base and cruel, then we get to practice forgiveness. Amen? Come on. I don't have the, the right to, to hold it against you. What did Jesus say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us, come on, as we forgive them, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. So if they are trying to hurt me, I get to practice forgiveness. And I get to learn how to release that. And I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm not going to hold that against you. Because I know people to, to this very day, somebody said something to them. It may have been days ago, weeks ago, hours ago, years ago, months ago, whatever. And they're still holding on to it. They've not released that. And they have not forgiven that person. And we need to learn to do that. If we want God to forgive us. That's a scary prayer if you really think about that. Another place he said, when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any. That your Father which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. For if you do not forgive them, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. That's scary. We don't have the right as believers in Christ to hold on to unforgiveness toward people. You don't have that right. You have to release them if you expect God to forgive you. I would not want to slam the door on God's forgiveness by see, just seething in my bitterness towards something or someone. So if they're off base and they're cruel, then forgive them. Bitterness only hurts you. A knee-jerk response to criticism is a reaction that has not been given adequate consideration, and in most cases, it comes off as harsh and defensive. And therefore, we lash back, because the tongue is a two-edged sword. But pointing out my flaws, to me, can be good if it helps shape my character. So the question again, is criticism bad? Pointing out my flaws to me, is a good thing. Everybody say that with me. Pointing out my flaws, to me, is a good thing. Pointing out my flaws to someone else is always a bad thing. Are you hearing me, church? 
you got a problem with me, Matthew says, if you've got aught with your brother, you go to your brother. If he doesn't receive you, take someone else and go back. If he doesn't receive you, then you take him before the church. But he didn't say if you got out with your brother, you go to this sister and that brother and this sister and that over there and that over there. And then maybe somewhere at some point after you went to everybody else and everybody knows your dirty laundry, then maybe I might say something to you. That is always a bad thing. We see the example in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Are you still with me? Say amen. Galatians 2, 11, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul is writing this to the church at Galatia, Galatia. He said, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Now this is Simon Peter. And Paul is, Peter, I got something to say to you, brother. To his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, now James is the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So you got the Jewish church in Jerusalem, and Peter's over here, he's hob hobnobbing, hanging out with the Gentiles, until James and the brethren showed up, the Jewish brethren showed up. All right, that's what he's talking about. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. In other words, the Jewish brethren. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So he's like, look, you, 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 and you, come here. I got something to tell you. You're a hypocrite. You would sit down with these Hebrew brothers, with these Gentile brothers over here until James and his crowd showed up. Peter, do you remember that you were called to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile? The very first Gentile that came into the kingdom came as a result of your preaching. And now you won't have anything to do with them because you're afraid that you're going to be criticized by the Jewish brethren. You're a hypocrite. Come on, church, that's not flattering. That's the truth. And if Peter heard it, he's like, wow, I repent. You're right, Paul. You're right. I, he should open his heart and see the darkness that's in there. You're right. I won't do that again because I don't want Paul crawling my frame again. Amen. If we were to speak to each other in the church like that today, like... Huh? Come on, be honest. Out the door and like, well, where did so-and-so go? I don't know. Well, I told him this and that and everything. Well, that was true, but are you big enough to hear the truth and not be offended? That's the question. Are you big enough to hear what's being said and process it to see, does this have merit? Is this something that can help me? Am I wrong? And to say, God, I'm sorry. They're right about that. Pointing out my flaws to others is so strife and discord, and God hates that. And that is what, that's what was happening at Philippi 
Because he said, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and strife. And he said, some of them preach supposing that if they're going to add affliction, they're trying to hurt me. What are they doing? They're not coming to me and saying, Paul, this and this and this. They're going to this one and that one and that one and that one and that one. Proverbs 6.16 says, these six things God hates. Seven is an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked imagination, feet that swift to run to mischief, and the seventh one, I mean, a false witness that speaks lies, and the seventh one is he that sows discord among the brethren. God hates that. He hates that. I mean, sowing discord among the brethren, it's bad enough when the world's out here and they're like, do you know what she said? Do you know what? Did you hear? Oh, man, they're out there doing this. If it's going on in the world, that's bad enough. But when you are sowing discord in the house of God among the body of Christ, brother, I'm going to tell you what, I don't want to get around you because I'm waiting for that bolt of lightning to hit you. God hates that. And thankfully, he's merciful and a bolt of lightning won't hit you, but I'm just saying that. God's not happy with that. So we don't ever want to see. Church, I'm not dealing with a problem in the church. I hope you understand. It's like, well, who in the church is? Nobody that I know of. I hope you're not. I'm just letting you know these are the kinds of things that keeps that from happening. Because we have a great spirit at CBAG. I mean, there have been times now. There have been times. And thank God. I want, you know, let me just give a shout out for my board members. Because they are godly men and they help me carry the, the, the ministry. And they, they have wisdom and insight. And, and, and they back me when I have to do some things. Sometimes it's hard, you know. And there, there have been times, and there have some people I've had to call in the office are like, look, this and this and this, and that's, that's not going to happen anymore, you know. Well, you're welcome here. That behavior's not. Okay. And we want you to stop doing that. I'm trying to help. I'm not trying to get out. I'm, I'm trying to help. You know, God doesn't like that, and... So we don't, we don't have that, and we've got a great spirit here, so it's not a problem. But this is, if we can learn these things, it will help you just in life. You know, it'll help you in your marriage. It'll help you on your job. Because big people only get upset over big things. Come on, let's be big people. So wrapping this up. It's hard to think those things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of a good report when the world is full of negativity. When 80% of our thoughts are negative, it's very hard to keep your mind on things that are good and positive. And people are more apt to see what is wrong than what is right. And so their comments will reflect that. We will then think and speak and hear and receive cursings or blessings as a result of that. But church, let me tell you something. Curses are not caused by what people say about you. They are caused by what you allow those words to do to you in your life, in your heart. So I can't stop what you say about me, but I can do something about what I do with what you say about me. 
Now, if you say something that, like this young man's, like my daddy told me I'd never amount to anything, he allowed those words to curse him because he took them in his heart and he stewed over them and he, it, it did affect his life, you know. He never saw himself as succeeding in life because he was told he'd never amount to anything. That's a shame. That is really a shame. You can do something about that because people are going to criticize you. Jesus was perfect, and they criticized him. The Pharisees constantly followed him and criticized him. And we are perfectly imperfect. And people are going to point that out from time to time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me, please? You can see criticism is good. Information that you need, if you will accept it in your head and not in your heart. Let me expound on that statement now, because I say it sometimes, and I want you to make sure I heard what I, you heard what I said. Criticism is good if you accept it in your head. Accept it in your head, but not in your heart. In other words, all right, give me your best shot. Tell me what you really think. Church, I'm going to tell you something. I have a great respect and appreciation for people that tell me what they think. When Jeannie and I left Bible college, they sent us to Connecticut to help plant a church up there. And one thing I quickly learned was the culture in, in the North, in New England, is entirely different than the culture in the South. In the South, we're known for Southern hospitality, right? Southern hospitality is, hi, how you doing? How's your mama? And then you walk away, it's like, I can't stand that guy. I don't like his mama either. In the North, if they don't like you, you know they don't like you. Because they will tell you they don't like you. And they don't care about you or your mama. And they will tell you so. And I'm thinking, I'm listening to the way these people communicate with each other. And I'm thinking, you talk to people like that in the South, somebody's going to punch you in your face. <laughs> you don't talk to people like that where I come from. But over time, I learned to value their honesty. At least I know that guy hates my guts. In the South, the guy hates my guts, and I never know it. He's patting me on the back, looking for a place to stick the knife. Am I telling the truth, Southern people? Come on. So I learned that, and I learned to appreciate when people are honest and tell me the truth. I don't get my feelings hurt over that. Maybe, I had to, maybe you need to move to Connecticut for a while to learn this. I don't know. <laughs> Connecticut folks, Jim, if you're listening, God bless you, brother. I got a great brother in Connecticut. He tunes in sometimes. Sometimes he's texting me before I get out of the pulpit, you know. So you listen and you process what they're saying. Accept it in your head. And then only accept it in your heart. If it's true and it's something that can benefit you, you learn from it. This is what Paul was attempting to get across to the church at Philippi. And so this is why he said, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in discernment.
See, discernment is when I've heard what you said, I interpret the atmosphere. How well do you know me? Were you trying to hurt me? Were you, I'm, I'm testing the atmosphere. And I take what you said, and whether you meant to hurt me or you meant to help me, is there merit to what you said? And if it's true, then I'm going to humble myself. See, that's what discernment is, measuring it and properly weighing everything. He says that you may be approved, that you may approve of the things that are excellent. That means I'm going to approve of the things that was genuine and truly going to benefit me and make me a better person in Christ. So I approve of those things that are excellent. And if it's something like those people that was trying to just hurt Paul, that's not excellent. So I don't approve of the things that's not excellent, but I do approve of the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense. Do you understand why he's saying this now? A little bit better. Till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. If you will accept those things in your heart, and if you will not react out of emotions, if you will accept the information that you need, then you can use it like wheat. You take wheat and you keep the part that's good and make bread out of it. But the chaff, you burn it. All right? So you keep the part that's good, make bread out of it. You take the part that wasn't good and just burn it. Amen. I hope that's helped you this morning. Father, we just commit this word to you, Lord. I pray that each of us, Lord, God will take to heart the things that you've taught us through Paul's letter to Philippi, Lord, and the lessons that's in it. God, I believe that we'll all be better men, better women, better husbands, better wives, better employees, better friends, better family members, Lord, in every social group and every setting that we have fellowship, God. This will make us better. So, Lord, help us to learn from this this morning, God. It's not easy to learn. Sometimes it's painful and it hurts. People hurt your feelings. But, God, help us to be bigger than that, Lord. Now, Lord, there's things that the Word says we can't do. But, God, the Word also says that we can do all of them through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. So, Lord, we pray for your strength today, God. Open the eyes of our understanding, the ears of our understanding, God, the heart of our understanding, that we can hear what you said now and receive it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Take us to the throne.
singing that song I'm looking and there's a spider web up here let me see that can you see it from there it's right in front of the pulpit here it's just floating around like this there's two of them and I'm watching it and it's floating around all over the place and the spirit of the Lord spoke something to my heart that's like words of offense the other end is not attached to anything it's looking for a place to attach itself and God said, Bernie, that's just like the words of offense. They're looking for a place to attach itself. And once it's attached, then another will come and another will come. And then pretty soon the whole thing is just cluttered with a web. Just clutters up everything. Now, we're not going to let that stay there. Tomorrow, Hunter's going to tear that down. And I just, in my spirit, I'm like, how many of us have let those things attach to our heart? And there's some of you here this morning, and there's some things in your heart that you've held on to. Maybe for hours, days, weeks, months, years, maybe for a lifetime, like that young man I was talking about. And right where you're standing, right there, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and say, God... I'm not holding on to this anymore, Lord. I'm tearing out the webs. 
And you just need to release that. And if you will just verbally say that to him, God, I release that. Church, I can tell you that it may not disappear like that. Something else that I had to learn about forgiveness, it's a process. But it begins with you making the choice to do it. Because there was people in my life that had offended me and that hurt me and I had unforgiveness for them. And I would say, God, you know I don't mean this in my heart. But because you commanded me to forgive them, I choose to forgive them. And I kept praying that and praying that until I finally did actually forgive them. Not only that, I prayed God bless them, Lord. I would pray for their family. But it has to begin somewhere. So right where you're standing, say, God, I give this to you. Lord, that thing that was done to me, that thing that was said to me, that offended me, and Lord, I've carried it in my heart. Lord, like that spider web, it's all clogged up and it's dirty and nasty. And God, I just give it to you today, Lord. You told cast your cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, I just cast that upon you now, right now. Take it away, God, and cleanse me. Cleanse my heart, Lord. Make me new, Lord, that I am that man of righteousness to the glory and the praise of God. So, Father, I pray for those this morning, Lord. And maybe they're revisiting right now in their memory that event, God, when it was something was said or something that was done. And, Lord, I come in agreement with them right now. Father, you said if any two of you will agree as touching anything on earth, it will be done of the Father which is in heaven. And so, Lord, we come in agreement right now. God, it's clean, God. It's clean. It's clean, Lord. Clean them out, God. Remove all the cobwebs, God. All the things that attach them and bind them, God, and tries to hold them back from being everything that you have called them and wanted them to be. Lord, every person, Father, I pray that you just set them free, Lord. May they even physically, Lord, feel a new liberty and a freedom, God, a release, God, a happiness, Lord. Because, God, you told us in Paul's letter, if they would do this, God, if they would just do this, Lord, that they would have a peace that passes understanding and a joy that's unspeakable. So God, just give them peace and joy, I pray now, in Jesus' name. Now, Father, we thank you for our time together today, Lord. God, I pray that great things have been accomplished in the kingdom, Lord, and the kingdom has been strengthened by the word today. Now, Lord, I speak a blessing over every home that is represented here today, God. Make it a, a refuge, Lord, an escape from the world, God. Make our homes, Father, a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome. God, I pray that you strengthen the family today, husbands and their wives, children and their parents, siblings, one with each other, Father. God, I pray for those that's walking their journey alone, God, that they find that special person that you have just for them. Lord, just this week I heard about a, a, a gentleman, his wife, she did a terrible thing, Lord, and he's been alone, divorced. She continues in that lifestyle, and he's just miserable but God you've brought a wonderful Christian woman into his life Lord so Lord you're hearing these prayers God I pray for them they find that special person God that's going to treat them God with the respect and the honor that they should be treated with and then Lord I pray for those that's traveling their journey alone Lord and they're content to do that Father that you will be their mate now in Jesus name amen 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 God bless you church I hope that's benefited you and helped you this morning Jesus, I am.